Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to be here with our friend of the podcast, Dick Foth, for another session of Back Channel with Foth. And then we're going to jump into our interview with Elizabeth on the practice of processing. Took me two times to get that intro. Dick, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. I think practice of processing is like a little bit like trying to say rubber baby buggy. <laughs> oh, man. I'm interested in that. I'm interested in that, that um, topic. That's great. For sure. And uh, it, uh, anyway, I can't read my own handwriting, which doesn't help. So anyway, two true doctor's handwriting that he can't even read himself. So Dick got two questions for you. Um, one is how do we create teams that have structure and move us towards the goal without stifling creativity and becoming burdensome? You know, that. I think the Israelites had that challenge when young David shows up to go against Goliath. Yeah. You know, they said, you know, who's taking on the big guy? And David says, I will. And he says, well, you need to wear this. I think oftentimes when it comes to structures, we, we borrow from the past, whether it's Roman structure, that's pyramid or other kinds of things. But when I think of team, the first thing for me, really, that yeah. comes to mind is Jesus with Peter, James, and John. Hmm. And, that might not be the very first team because you can go back to, to the Old Testament, see other teams. But when you think of Jesus with the three and the 12 or sending them out two by two, um, or when you read the Acts and you, it's always almost always Paul and company. Hmm. You know, the, the, the first half of Acts is Peter and John, some others, and the last half of Acts is Paul and company, Barnabas. And then when you read the pastoral epistles, you have deacons and elders, and, and you have these, these um, guidelines that are functional guidelines. Hmm. You know, an, an elder or deacon needs to have this kind of character, needs not to be a philanderer, needs to be decent with his family and decent with money. And right at the heart of that, it, it says, and given to hospitality. Years ago, I read that. So what does punch and cookies have to do with being part of a team and leadership? What do they yeah. do? And of course, mm -hmm. hospitality is not punch and cookies. Hospitality yeah. is you inviting me into your space. Hmm. And so when we think of team, a lot of people use team language, but they don't use team methodology because okay. team suggests each person has a, has a role, but it fits with the whole. So when I think of team, I think of function, not control. Okay. For example, is the team part of an administrative structure? Mm -hmm. We talk about the administrative cabinet in a college, or we talk about the board of a church, that sort of thing. That's an administrative piece that oftentimes has to do with um, keeping the game in the boundaries, you, you know, mm -hmm. that, that yeah. sort of thing. Or is the team for a particular creative task? Because the question is, how do we create teams that have structure, mm -hmm. but don't stifle creativity. Um, I, I would, I just suggest this. Some teams you create ad hoc, that old Latin phrase for, for this moment, for this time. And I would in, encourage us, whatever the structure is, that we give the larger group, each person on the larger group, at some point in time, mm -hmm. the privilege and challenge of being a part of some team. Okay. And because that adds value to the larger group and to the vision, 
and it adds value to the person. Because a lot of times you have a single team. You know, mm-hmm. if, you, if you live long enough or you bring in enough cash or, we, you know, whatever it is, we'll let you be part of this particular mm-hmm. thing. So and, and then I would say don't think of a pyramid structure you know, where you have the group and then you have a, a little smaller group and you go up until you really get to the, to the big kahuna or whatever mm. it is on the, on the top. I would even say, don't think in terms of concentric circles that you serve mm. on that team out there till you get enough experience. Then you, I, I was at, I was speaking years ago at a, at a conference for a group called campus life youth for Christ. And, um, I had the privilege of being one of the plenary speakers, but they had breakout groups. And I went to the went to the group with Dr. Luke, who was a medical doctor. He was a Benedictine monk. Hmm. And he talked about the kingdom of God being a helix. That hmm. is a corkscrew. Hmm. So, that, so that you have a focus, but people can move around, up, whatever, down. Sure. If, it, if it's kingdom, I guess you got to move down right. in the system. Uh, and... And you're and you're part you're part of the larger team, but you're always moving in that. And I found that uh, fascinating because you yeah. can move in and out depending on the need. Yeah. Long answer to a straightforward question. No, excellent, excellent, and a lot of wisdom. And uh, Doctor Luke, did you say Benedictine? Uh, Doctor Benedictine monk. Yeah. yeah. Very, very cool. Very, very cool. So he clearly thought about this. Yes, he has. Yes, he has. Uh, well, he, had, he had the time. Let me put it that way. He did. He was, uh, well, yeah, that was it. That was another back channel with both. He remained focused. He, he had the focus thing in, in order. So uh, when there's transition, next question is, is when there's transition on the team, how do you maintain the vision and at the same time celebrate and grieve the loss? I, I think vision for a mission, whatever it is, is a cultural motif. It's okay. it's something that you always uh, talk about over and over, not just mm-hmm. a slogan necessarily, but it's something that's said and acted on again and again. So it gets it's built in. Years ago, when we were pastoring near the University of Illinois, I'm a young twenty something, and we got little kids, and there was a couple that started coming with their six kids and they didn't come from our denominational background, okay. but we were the closest thing to theirs. And so they came and he had been a medical missionary. They had been medical missionaries uh, in North India for years. Hmm. And uh, they were, they had guidelines for the family. And at one point I asked them, do you have those guidelines written down? Their names were Paul and Jesse Yardy, six kids. Hmm. And they said, and the kids said, no, I said, you didn't have those points on the refrigerator or anything? And said, no, it was just that we did them over and over again. Hmm. And it was just, uh, you'd, you'd like this. It's probably a story unconnected. Feel free to, to cut it, okay? The, the, both of them were very, Paul was the doctor. Jesse was the mother. Jesse's very strong personality. Paul's with Jesus now, and Jesse's 100 years old. Wow. And she, one day I said to her, I said, uh, uh, you know, you had your six kids in boarding school 1,100 miles from where you were during those years. How did you how did you stay in touch with them? Because this was back in the 1960s or something. And she said, well, I, I wrote letters. I said, really? All, mm-hmm. all six kids got a letter every week. And she said, no, all six kids got a letter every day. I said, what? 
And she looked at me like I had a, a third eye in the middle of my forehead and said, well, Dick, if they'd been at home, I would have spoken to them every day, wouldn't I? Hmm. I said, yeah, well, sure. That, that, that's sure. what I was thinking. Sure. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so um, transitions are going to happen. Yeah. Okay. I think first of all, so that needs to be understanding. There's going to be transition either by age or by moving or by death. And so I would encourage us to, to honor individuals along the way. So when mm. the transition happens, it's, you know, it's, it's another honoring. Find excuses, find reasons to have parties, make mm. celebration a part of the culture. Yeah. And so when the transition happens, it yes, we do grieve it because we've yeah. lost that person's presence. But it's but the grieving is not uh without end. So yeah. Good word. Good word. Dick, always appreciate your wisdom and insight. We're gonna go ahead and jump into the interview with Elizabeth on the practice of processing. Well, there's no time better than now to get started. So here we go. Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to be here with a new friend of the podcast, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. Would you go ahead and just share a little bit about yourself? We uh, were talking a few minutes before we hit record, and um, I was sharing with you about uh, the blessing your book has been to me and to my family and reading through it. And the one good thing about being a podcast host is you feel like you get to know people because you read their books, then you do a little bit of investigation about who they are. Um, but the people that are listening in, they haven't done that already. So would you just share a little bit of what's important to you and what you, you would like for people to know before we jump into the list of questions I have for you? Yeah, yeah. So my name is Elizabeth Vahey Smith, and I am the mom of TCKs. We worked as missionaries in Papua New Guinea for five years. And after we transitioned out of that, and I was wondering, where do I go next in my journey? I noticed that there was a huge lack of resources for missionary families in helping their kids thrive. Hmm. And so through that, I started working with TCK Training, and I'm now the Chief Operating Officer of TCK Training. Um, and in my work with families, I got the opportunity to do a lot of debriefing. And at the end of our debriefs, where I would help them kind of lay out the story of their lives... We would get to the place where I would say, okay, and now you take this and go process as a family. And a lot of the families were um, confused on, yeah. on how exactly to go about doing that. Hmm. And so the practice of processing is just my, my manual on how to do that. And it's been really interesting because it's been something that I've had to very intellectually figure out myself um, over the past several years of life. And so through not knowing how to do it and figuring out on my own how to do it, the practice of processing is kind of a, a step-by-step of a guide as we can make for this art of processing um, to empower families to be able to do that for themselves and with their kids. Yeah, I appreciate it. We, our family went through a family debrief and um, learned a lot about ourselves and uh, it was valuable for us. And I, I think that's what I love about this book. Um, processing doesn't come intuitively to me. It's something that I don't think that comes naturally to me. And so it was valuable just to have a resource. And as you said, to give us a practical guide. 
And I'm um, looking forward. We'll put the I'll put a link in the show notes for the practice of processing um, so people can have access to that um, on Amazon. They can get the book there and uh, looking forward to get the word out about that. Um, so when you talk about processing, um, what do you mean? Um, you talk about understand, sort, proceed. But can you just share processing what it means to you and, um, yeah, the value, the how it, the value of it? Yeah. So I feel like processing is this practice of of delving into the experiences that we've had instead of just running through life without that reflection. And so processing is taking the time to reflect back on what happened and evaluating the emotions that came up and the decisions that we made and the internal narratives that we thought of. And this practice empowers us to live more intentionally as we are going through life. And the tricky part of it is sometimes the things that happen in life are really hard. And so we would rather like not think about those things. (laughs) And so we choose to not process rather than taking the time to engage with those things. And we have this mentality that we are just moving on. And really, we're not successfully healing from things or getting over things. And and all of these things that we're moving on from, we're, we're really carrying that grief and that trauma and those heavy experiences with us inadvertently. And so processing really gives us the ability to kind of unpack some of that. Yeah. Good word. And so those those ideas of understand, sort, proceed, is that like a pro is that the the steps to it? Or could you just share a little bit about those? Yeah. So oftentimes when we have something come up in our day to day, we'll have this emotion that comes up, like we'll get angry about something. And so the first thing that we want to do is we want to understand what we're feeling. Hmm. A huge number of people don't have the skills to notice and identify what they're feeling in that moment. And so that's a skill that my book talks about how to build that skill. And so that we can start to identify those, those emotions and understand what they mean. So recognizing when I feel angry, that doesn't mean I'm a bad person. That means that I feel like something unjust has happened. And then the next piece is that we want to sort that where Where is that injustice and where does that belong? Is this anger relevant to the situation that I'm in? Or is that anger coming out of an experience that I had before that I'm remembering right now because this situation brought that back up for me? And so I think of one example of this is um, the phrase, it depends. Like when you ask a question and somebody answers, Well, it depends. I remember getting ready to go out to the mission field and I got that answer all the time (laughs) to the point that I felt like I couldn't. Right? Sure. Every time I asked a question, they would say, well, it depends. And I I can't like really strategize my life around that answer. (laughs) Um, And it was really hard. And now when somebody gives me the answer, it depends. It just like wrinkles my whole body 
because I'm remembering how hard that was back then. Now, it's not actually because that situation is happening right now, but it's because that word kind of triggered that memory for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm getting stressed about that, I want to be able to identify, okay, I'm not stressed actually about this moment right now. I'm stressed because I'm remembering that moment back then and really sorting out where do these feelings belong. And then the last one is proceeding. And with proceeding, what we want to think about is, okay, this happened. Like we're not trying to get over it. We're not trying to move on. We're acknowledging this happened. Yeah. And now what? What do I want to do with this having been part of my history? And how do I want to move forward from here? And so I think that that step of understanding, sorting, and proceeding is really the the broad strokes framework of how to process. That's good. It's good stuff. And it's a lot of those things. It's for somebody that likes to move on. And uh, that's, that's me. Like that just, hey, let's just move on, move on, move on and not walk through those steps. And I love, it helps me. um, The next question I have, you share that's more of an art than it is a science. I'm a science guy. And so I think that learning this art, it helps gives me structure. Like those three words help give me some structure for the science part of me and I can begin to develop the art of it, of it. So, um, and so you do, you, you mentioned that it's more of an art than it is a science. Um, how do how do the science minded people or people maybe that uh, art doesn't come naturally to them? How do they grow in this so that it's they're not just saying, "Okay, I'm going to understand, I'm going to sort, I'm going to proceed," right? Because I think art takes creativity, it takes some time, it takes understanding, it takes maybe a little bit more than just say, "I'm going to do these three steps and then there's an output." Is that does that is that a fair question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When I, when I talk about this, the art that goes into processing, I think the, the real issue is that for science-minded people, they love to have a, if you do X, Y, and Z, then you will have the output that you're looking for. There you go. That's and it. That's it. <laughs> I, I don't think that it boils down to that so simply because it depends Right. Um, as frustrating as that phrase is, there are so many factors that come together that really make what needs to come together to reach healing something that is an art more than a science. Mm. And so my book, The Practice of Processing, was written for science-minded people. Um, I've got flowcharts. I've got questions. I've got <laughs> systems and structures. Because I, I also consider myself to be a science-minded person. And so that's why I felt like this was so hard for me to figure out. But then when I did, to have the tools to be able to explain yeah. what process is in a really systematic way. Yeah, and good. so there's the framework is present for those science-minded people. Yeah. And then they're going upon those those structures, kind of understanding the nuances to get to that point of healing. Sure. And I think anytime we deal with people, there's there's art involved, right? Caring for people, living with people, there's an art part of it involved. I think the challenge for me is some somebody who's new to this 
the practice of processing, sometimes you just don't know where to start, right? You don't know yeah. like, Hey, I want to do this. And I, I recognize the value of it. And, or, you know, for my family, for myself, but then you become somewhat paralyzed thinking, well, I don't, I don't know where to begin with this. You know what I mean? And so I think that's, like I said, your book provided a lot of great, great, great insight and uh, wisdom for me just to give, build a foundation, a great place to start. And then, as you said, all, once that structure is there, then I, the nuances and the art can come in because I have a good place to, a good foundation to start off of. So good, good, good mm-hmm. stuff. Um, the idea of white space. Um, so this was, this was something new to me, um, as I read it. So, so how do you look at white space and how does someone recognize what white space is, what white space is not? And, um, yeah, you just share about white space. Yeah. So I think to understand white space, it's helpful first to start with margin And so people are familiar with margin. They open up a book and they recognize that the letters don't go from one end of the page to the other, but there's some space in between. Um, And this is really helpful as people try to create margin in their lives, that they're not running around the clock, but they have time and space for for rest and for recovery and for for things that don't look like their day job and uh, those hobbies of life. Oftentimes, what I have seen is that some people get off the clock, they go sit in front of Netflix, they watch some TV to de-wind, they go to bed, they wake up the next morning, drink a cup of coffee, and then get right back to it again. And what it looks like is opening up this book and seeing this wall of text. And yes, there's margin on either side, but when they start going, they're just going flat out again. White space is something that we use in graphic design or website development. And what we're talking about here isn't just the margins on the far sides, but all of the white space that's in between different elements. And so we're talking about when you have a section of text, how much space is there before you go to the next section? Or when you have a title, how much white space is around the title to really highlight that section of it? Um, how do graphics come together and really just thinking about the empty space that's around. And when I'm thinking about processing and using white space as opposed to margin, when we wake up in the morning, we don't want to just dive back into another wall of text. Like we want space in between these sections where we can not just unwind in front of the TV, even though that is super important to have the unwind time, but also to have the time of reflection where we're able to think back on what's happened and really understand how that has impacted us and what we want to do about it moving forward. And so having that white space gives us that that availability in our schedules to be able to do that reflection. Yeah, that's good. I, it was honestly, I I do a lot of reading for this podcast, um, and a lot a lot of episodes in, and um, yeah, it's the first time I'd ever come across of it. I do a lot of reading outside of the podcast, um, but I love how you define that. It's not just margin, but it's the space in between, and um, I I think that's uh, it was it's insightful for me 
it's been challenging for me to have, to apply that personally in my personal life. Um, I'm I like to cook with gas, as I like to say, meaning that I, I do normally turn the page and continue. There's not a whole lot of margin on the side or in the text. Um, <laughs> but this idea, if I want to grow in the practice of processing, I do need that. I do need the white space to be able to do it. And and you talked about unwinding. It's interesting as I've gotten older, the things that I used to unwind um, as a younger person, and now as I get older and the work that I am. Um, it's different. You know, the things mm-hmm. I, I, when I was younger, I, I, and maybe it was TV I'd sit and watch, but now, honestly, I, I don't want to watch TV because there's more drama there. If I want to, <laughs> if I want to unwind, um, I, and I need some white space, you know, it's more sitting outside looking at the birds and you know, I'm aging myself, but it's, but those type <laughs> things of, of that, that is unwinding. And that gives me that margin or that white space in my life versus filling it up with media or other things that I probably did you know, 15, 20 years ago. So anyway, yeah. The other thing that I thought was fascinating too was, and this is my kids will probably be happy that that I asked this question, the idea of categorizing emotions. Um, You mentioned a few different ones there, negative, positive, comfortable, uncomfortable, empowering, disempowering. What are some of the plus and minuses of um, categorizing our emotions? And you, you, like I said, you gave a few different ones there. Um, probably I would have as a, as a parent was probably these, these are the good ones and the bad ones. Um, you know I mean? Yeah. Or try to move people, uh, move my kids away from ones that I thought were, I labeled bad and more towards the mm-hmm. ones I thought were good. But anyway, so what are some of the plus and minuses of labeling our emotions? Yeah. Well, I, I love labeling things. Um, I am, I went to college or university at, for a, as a linguist. And so as a linguist, I have a great love for words and I love putting words on things. And so I think that when we are using these words, they give us a a greater understanding of what they are and what they mean. And so in that way, categorizing emotions helps us grasp these concepts better. Um, Negative and positive is, is probably my least favorite because people get confused and think that emotions are negative and positive and really events are negative or positive. Okay. And we feel the appropriate emotion for those different events. And hmm. so if our friend moves away or if someone that we love dies, sadness is the appropriate emotion for that. Hmm. We don't, want people to be happy about that. Like that, that doesn't make sense as a response to that. And so, but oftentimes what happens is we conflate that, the negative experience and we make those emotions negative. And so then we put this moral label on these emotions and we say, all right, these are the good ones and these are the bad ones. And if you're feeling the bad ones, you should stop it and start feeling the good ones. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. So that's, that's actually not the most helpful. Um, and so I, I do try to step away from the negative and, and positive just because it's so frequently misunderstood. The other ones like comfortable and uncomfortable, I find that's really good for um, having some kind of words that we can put on it. So that is a positive and negative and also gives us a bit of self-awareness. What, what do I feel comfortable feeling and what does feel uncomfortable for me? And it helps us understand more about ourselves. I think empowering and disempowering helps us think about our motives. 
Um, and because oftentimes when we feel disempowered, we choose to do something that makes us feel empowered Mm. for children, usually, and many adults, they choose anger. Anger makes them feel strong. And so if somebody made them feel weak, they will get angry because that makes them feel strong. And so they're meeting that disempowering with an empowering emotion. Some people like to feel happy. And this is a very empowering emotion. If I'm sad, I'm going to stop feeling sad. I'm going to do something that makes me feel happy. I'm in control of my life. I'm happy and happy is morally good. And so everything is, is good there. And it's just this response. But when we recognize what we're doing there, going back and forth between disempowering and empowering, we can kind of um, think critically about this idea that happiness is a morally superior emotion and Mm. actually engage with the sadness that's present and go through the practice of processing that sadness to understand what's happening. No, it's good. It's 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 challenging. Like I said, it's uh, something that doesn't. Uh, I've not done the majority of my life, but I, as I try to grow and become a better human being and a better parent, um, this is uh, this is one one area because I, I would have been the person that was, these are good and these are the bad. So I love the other words that you provided here because it, I think it helps. Um, it helps us go a little bit deeper. At least it helps me go a little bit deeper mm-hmm. and moving beyond just good and bad, but yeah. just negative, positive, comfortable, uncomfortable, empowering, disempowering. And uh, it helps me uh, dig a little deeper and this not let rest there on the super superficial level. Um, what are the other things you talk about um, as I wish I would have did as a parent was um, this idea of helping our children um, build an emotional vocabulary. Um, how can we help mm-hmm. our children when it comes to developing an emotional vocabulary? Yeah, well, the easiest way to help kids build an emotional vocabulary is to use an emotional vocabulary. Okay. And so first off, thinking, what words do I have? How, how many emotional words do I know? Uh, the English language has about 3,000 different words for emotions. And so if you want to Give yourself a couple minutes and write down as many as you can think about and then, you know, evaluate. Do I have a lot? Do I have a little? Um, As far as practical tools, one thing that I have seen helps build emotional vocabulary is reading. When, When you get a group of men together and you find out who has really good vocab and who doesn't have really good vocab, the the men who read a lot are the ones that have great vocab. And it's because they're reading these stories and they're, their authors are putting emotion words with characters. And so they're connecting that and they're building that vocab. And so I think reading is a really wonderful way to build that as a family. But also um, watching movies and TV shows, when people are experiencing emotions, to hit pause and say, what do you think she's feeling right now? And just go around the room. And not only is this teaching emotions, but it's also teaching empathy and watching for those social cues and, you know, noticing those subtle things that the actors or characters do to communicate those emotions. And so they're picking up on all of those things. But I, there are multiple times where 
one of my kids would say, oh, I think she's sad. And another kid would say, oh, I think she's, she's angry. And I would say, well, yeah, I think the word that I would probably use is upset, which is, you know, a combination of sad and angry. It's a little bit of both. And so we're building this emotional vocabulary and we're inviting them into bigger words than sad and angry, which are great, but sometimes don't have the nuance that it's appropriate. And so that can be a really easy way to put that vocab building into your family movie nights. Yeah, it's good. Great practical, great practical suggestion. And um, very, very, very insightful to, because you said, if the parents, if we're lacking in our vocabulary, it's going to be hard to, if we only have two words, mad and sad or, or, Happy and sad, it, it limits the vocabulary in the family. And and insightful about yeah. reading, reading and um the vocabulary we get from that um specifically. So um you mentioned some ways, you know, people are listening to this and they think, hey, that's a it's a great idea processing, but but how is this because I think it comes back, how is this going to help us? Um so we're processing, Aaron's convinced, Elizabeth's convinced. Um, but how's this going to help help us if we begin to do this processing? Yeah. Well, one thing that processing does, and I, I would say the, the biggest thing that I see is the process of healing. Hmm. And so this is when, when hard things happen to us, being able to actually heal from that, that grief or that anger or that those heavy emotions that are present so that we're able to move on. Oftentimes when we have traumas that have happened to us in life, we also have these triggers that come up. And so whenever anybody says this word, all of a sudden you're feeling elevated. Like if somebody says, well, that depends when I ask them a question, I'm, I'm going to need more of an answer, right? Um, but for bigger traumas, those responses can be even stronger and they can interfere with our relationships. And so I, I think that a huge majority of conflicts really happen because different people's trauma responses keep bumping into each other. And so taking some time to think about when I'm having a problem in my relationship, where is that coming from? Hmm. And, and where did that come from, right? Yeah. If I get offended at the notion that my helpful behavior isn't helpful, why? Where did mm. that come from? When did that start? And there may be things that have happened to me previously that are really causing this trauma response. And so by processing, by taking that white space and reflecting back and thinking, why, where is this coming from? We can become more aware of our own history and we can choose how we want to behave differently moving forward in that preceding stage. Yeah, that's good. So the thought just came to mind. Do, do, when it comes to processing, do we, you talked about baby traumas. Do we process maybe the good things that go on in life too? So if there's been an event that's that's been really um, exciting, impactful for a family or an individual, and it's um, propelled them forward, is it valuable to process that too, or is it just more? Is it more valuable to process things maybe that were traumatic and maybe were hurtful? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a great question, and I think it's important to process everything, all the things. 
good things, bad things, boring things. I think all of it really needs to be processed. It's way easier to process the happy things than the hard things. And I think that intuitively, we do a lot of processing. It is normal for people to process. When something happens, we often go to the people who are close to us and we we tell them the thing that happened, right? Like if if somebody won um, and you were watching your son score the goal, you're going to go and you're going to tell all your friends. You're going to be like, oh, let me tell you what happened. And you're going to go through the story and you're going to talk about what you were doing and feeling and what you saw him do and feel. And and that is processing. And so I think that it's valuable to process the good things. Because we can learn a lot from that. Mm. And I think what is trickier, what is harder, what people need more help with is yeah. processing the things that they would rather not talk about ever again. Uh, makes makes a ton of a ton of a uh, ton of sense. Um so maybe that their their parents are listening in uh, and they're thinking, well, are there things that I shouldn't process with my kids? Um, are there things that maybe if I process with them, it could be harmful? Um, does, does that, is that a fair question? Um, and, and, yeah. and, and any wisdom or thoughts on that for parents that are listening in? Yeah. Yeah. I would say for, for parents, for children, for everyone, everything needs to be processed. And there are some things that can be so heavy that they are perhaps unwise to process without good support in place. That's good. And so I think about, um, because I love metaphors, I think about the, you know, lift with your legs, not your back kind of, kind of thing. Like there are some things that are so heavy that we need to be really strategic in how we're approaching it. Because when we are remembering traumas, what we can do is we can flood our bodies with the emotions from that trauma. And that can trigger our amygdala, that can trigger cortisol and adrenaline. And we are reliving those experiences, Mm. which without the proper support can be really harmful. Mm. And so when there are things that are heavy, it is really helpful to get a trauma-informed therapist in that room to kind of watch that. Because a trauma-informed therapist is going to see when you get flooded, they're going to be able to help you regulate from that and get you out of that state. They'll know when to press pause so that they can get you back on your thinking brain and get your emotions regulated again before continuing onward. And they'll have strategies that can make it less likely for you to get flooded as you revisit it. And so we still want to process it. But we want to have the really good techniques into place so that we're not overwhelming our brains with those stress hormones because yeah. that can be harmful for us. Yeah. Good word. Trauma-informed therapist. That's a new one for me. Um, so it, it, is that somebody that specializes in trauma or is that somebody? Yeah, just a, a thought on that. Yes. So most counselors are not trauma informed. And so that is something to be aware of. They, they don't trauma is not a default part of a licensed therapist's training. 
And so it is important to find people who do have um, some kind of further qualification that is in trauma, whether that Mm -hmm. is experience, whether that's EMDR, um, or just in general trauma-informed, because those therapists are going to understand how these big things can be impacting um, and be monitoring for those flooding situations. That's good. Um, yeah, it's, uh, that was one thing that stuck out to me there. Sorry, that wasn't in the questions I sent you, but you brought it up. So I thought I would ask. Um, so let's think the good, some maybe some good questions. Some parents are thinking, obviously, we're going to put the show note in the show notes for them to get the book. Um, at the same time, is there some questions you could, could share with us that might be some good ones to start as good processing questions? Yes. So one of them, and um, this one I've stolen from Lauren Wells, who's the my CEO of TCK Training, so we work closely together, is what made that feel so hard? Um, and what made that feel so hard is, is a really powerful question that kind of digs down into the meat of the issue right? Like the actual source of what's going on there. And that can be really powerful for parents working with kids to to hone in on the piece of the story. Because oftentimes when kids are presenting problems, they can present surface level problems to us that we can think that's not that big of a deal. Why are you this upset about it? But when we ask what's making that feel so hard, it can help them dive deeper into the heart of those problems. And so I think that that is a really good question. Um, And even for us in our own reflection to understand what, what is making this feel so hard for me. And I, I have experienced times where asking that question has helped me focus in on the real issue and has empowered me to be able to communicate about that real issue so that we can actually address what's what's truly the problem. Yeah. My, my father-in-law says there's uh, frequently there's the presented problem and the real problem. And so and I think that's when I hear you talk is getting getting more that's a great question to help us get, you know, a little deeper into what the real challenge is rather than what's presented because a lot of time the presented is just the the superficial part of it. And without a good question like you're sharing here, you know, a lot of times it's just easy just to accept the the presented one and move on. You know what I mean? But you're never really understanding yeah. exactly exactly what's going on. So one one more. I got one more of my questions and I'm going to ask you if you have anything I should have asked. But um, and then we'll pray. How does timing play into processing? And um, and if you're not intuitive, say you're an parent like me who's not intuitive when it comes to processing. How do you know when's a good time to process? When's not a good time to process? how long to process, how not, if it's too long or too short or any thoughts on the timing of processing, when to do it, how to do it. Yeah. Does that, does that help? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to start with saying it depends and then go on to say that it's uh, (laughs) a bit hard. (laughs) Uh, But I think, I think some things that are important to keep in mind is that everybody needs to be in a good frame of mind to do processing. So if you're doing this as a family, usually when people are stressed out, it's not a good time to process. 
because they're already stressed out, right? Um, One thing that I like to remind parents is that when our amygdalas are out, when we're running on adrenaline, we are thinking brains are offline. We're not doing the thinking. We're doing the surviving. And so if your kids are in a place where they're not doing the thinking and they're not doing the, they're just doing the surviving, trying to give them the wisdom of parenting is throwing your pearls before swine. Okay. That is what that is. Okay. And so we need to wait until our kids are not escalated before we can have those times of processing. Because their thinking brain is going to be online and they're going to be able to engage with us on that level. Hmm. And so giving some time to de-escalate from the situation before circling back is really valuable. Hmm. Another thing that's also important to consider is if everybody's having a good time, sometimes the good time can just exist for a while. Hmm. And sometimes we don't we don't want to pull the plug to talk about the hard things while we're in the middle of a good time. Right. Um, that, that may not be the wisest time. Hmm. What I like to recommend for families is that if they're going to schedule some time to do processing, that they put the good time after the processing. Right. And so have, have dinner where you're going over your processing questions. You're thinking through this event that's happened And then after that, do a game night or after that, do a movie and like do something that brings people together with fun after you talk about the hard things. And don't try to pull out those heavy conversations in the middle of family connected time. That's good. That's good. So my question for you is, is there a question that I should have asked? You know, you're the you're the expert on this. Um, And um, is there, you know, I, I read through the book, read through it again thought about the questions, prayed about the questions. Um, but is there a question you think, well, Aaron, you know, you probably should ask this question. Yeah. Um, there's actually a question that you sent me, but okay. didn't ask. All right, well, let's do I, that thought, one. I thought it was, it was good. Um, you said, um, you mentioned that processing is innate yeah. and talking a little bit more about that that intuitiveness. And I think that um, kids are really good at processing. Mm. I think that kids are really, really good at processing because when something bad happens, they'll just cry. I mean, it doesn't matter where they are, middle of a grocery store, middle of a movie, <laughs> like wherever they are. Yeah. <laughs> if something bad happens, they're going to let all of those feelings loose. Hmm. And I think that one of the things that we have learned in our own childhoods is that that is not acceptable, right? Hmm. And usually we've learned that from parents who Hmm. also divided things in categories of good and bad. Hmm. And so not only was that not acceptable, but it was bad to even feel that way. Hmm. And so what we were trained as children was to shut that down, Hmm. to not think about the hard things, to just get happy instead. Hmm. And so now into adulthood, it is normal for us when hard things happen to not get upset, 
to not think about it, but to rush ahead and focus on being happy instead. Hmm. And I think that that that's something big that needs to be processed for us who grew up that way. And I think it's also important for us to turn and look at our kids and think about what are healthy parenting strategies when we're dealing with these heavy emotions, Hmm. because they are processing and we do want them to have those skills and maybe not in the middle of the supermarket. (laughs) <laughs> right. And so figuring out a balance. Sure. Nah, that's good. Good word and challenging word. Elizabeth, it's been fun to hang out with you. Um, I've learned a lot from you. And uh, will you pray for us that we will, you know, hosting a podcast, yeah. you, you want to get information out there, but I, I do want it to impact people's lives. And I do think your book is one that will impact many people's lives. So will you pray? Will you pray for us? And um, yeah, we'll end in prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Dear God, thank you so much for the stories that you have created. Thank you for us as people and the lives that you have, that you've given us. You've put so many things together and, and through you, we've had so many different experiences and I know that you work all things to the good of those who love you. And that is sometimes tricky when we're going through heavy things. Um, But I thank you for the ways that you have used my story to create um, books that can help other people. And I pray that as people are listening to this podcast and um, as they're delving in more to the practice of processing, that they can find Uh, freedom from the hard things that they've allowed to to accumulate in their lives without letting go of. I hope that they can gain new skills to set up new generational cycles as they move forward in ways that allow us to have healthier and richer relationships and bring us more in unity with each other as they bring us more in unity with you. I thank you for um, your your light that gives us hope even in the midst of hard things. And I pray that the people who are listening to this podcast today will feel that light alongside of them as they go into this journey of processing. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. 